So the scripture that I have for you today is from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You've changed. That wouldn't feel good if I said that to you, would it? <laughs> With that kind of tone, said, Deb, you've changed. I don't know about you anymore. <laughs> that, if, no matter who you are, that would evoke some kind of a negative emotion. But it's possible that somebody might say it to you with uh, just kindness and uh, curiosity. They say, you've changed. Something's different about you, right? Now, no matter how it's said uh, or, or who says it to you, this does reflect the truth that you are not the same person today as you were 10 years ago. That one's easier to understand, right? You're not the same person as you were five years ago. Okay, still pretty easy to understand. A year ago, a month ago, you're not the same person today as you were last week. And you're not the same person today as you were yesterday. Now, the smaller we, the smaller we dissect that truth, the harder it is to understand, right? How, how is it that I'm a different person today than I was yesterday? Sure, you may have the same house, the same family, the same job, whatever, but you are continually changing into a new version of yourself, continually, just like your skin. They say your skin is constantly shedding and reforming, just this amazing truth. You are continually changing into a new version of yourself with refined desires and refined values, continually making choices that shape your very identity and who you think you are. The pandemic has changed a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people. Maybe everybody has been changed through the pandemic, unless for some reason or another they weren't forced to, right? But how many people have said something like, you know, I just realized the importance of family now uh, from the pandemic. I'm going to spend more time with my family or I'm going to make sure I come to church more often because it's very important to me. And when it was taken away, that was painful. So that's really important to me now. I'm going to do that. I've changed. Or maybe some people I I know have left a job because they said that job was no longer worth the stress and the toll and the, the weight of responsibility that I was feeling on myself. All kinds of examples of this truth that the pandemic has changed a lot of people. But it's representative that it was only accelerated of this uh, version of this uh, truth that we are continually becoming new people. It's just a fact. In the book uh, Atomic Habits, which I've mentioned before uh, by author James Clear, the author frames habits not around the choices themselves, but in and through the importance of understanding how your habits, things you do every single day, all day long, your habits 
uh, he, he, how the author frames habits not around the choices themselves, but in and through the importance of understanding how your habits shape you into your future self. So in order to successfully start or change a habit, it becomes paramount not to just say, I'm going to eat more fruits and vegetables this year. Okay, that would be one thing that maybe lots of people say. But instead say, I'm going to be a person who eats healthy food. See, I'm going to be the type of person who does this, not just I'm going to eat more fruits and vegetables. Or uh, rather than saying I'm going to exercise more, you say I'm going to be a person who lives a healthy and active lifestyle. That's the kind of person that you're going to be, not just a goal that you have. Or to say uh, not just I'm going to read more books this year, but say I'm going to become a reader, someone who just regularly reads. Of course I would read 10 books in a year or whatever it might be. Or instead of saying, I'm going to go to church more often, you say, I'm going to be a follower of Christ who, of course, would go to church as often as possible. You see, there's a difference between a goal of just something you could check off and a transformation into a new version of yourself. The operating truth of this book is that our habits determine who you become. So I'm guessing this resonates within your heart as true, right? It it makes sense when we think about it. We can easily see that it makes sense, even if we don't regularly dissect our habits and project the implications of them. How often do we do this? But if this little insight about habits is true, then it becomes important to ask yourself the question. Ask yourself this question. Who do you want to become? Who do you want to become? You're continually changing, okay? You can see that five years ago, you're very different. So in five years, you'll be very different again. Who do you want to be in five years? Who do you want to be for the rest of your life? Who do you want to be for the next year? Who do you want to be for the next week? How do you want to show up to whatever it is that you're facing this week? Who do you want to be in the face of danger in uncertain times. Who do you want to be? Lent is a good time to talk about habits. Maybe the best time of the year. And it's, it's become kind of a time where we address habits and we, we say something like, how often do you hear this? I'm going to give up X for Lent. I'm going to give up sugar for Lent. Well, that's a good time to do that. I'm going to give up Facebook for Lent. Great idea. <laughs> I'm going to give up worrying for Lent, or I'm going to give up um, going out to eat for Lent, whatever. You know, you can insert your own uh, habit there. Sometimes people say, well, I'm, instead of giving something up, I'm going to uh, add something. I would say, be careful with that. Because if we say, well, I'm going to give something up, okay, well, then it means you're going to have to change the way you're thinking about whatever habit it is. And if you say you're going to add something... <laughs> Well, now all of a sudden you're adding to your busyness, which is probably the greatest hindrance to our spiritual growth, is busyness and making time for things. So be careful so that you don't just automatically start feeling guilty about whatever it is that uh, you're wanting to do. But Lent has always been supposed to have been a lot more than 40 days of spiritualized self-help, of just saying, I want to see if I can do it. Can I go 40 days without going to the ice cream place? Probably not for me. Can I, go, can I go 40 days without watching a show that's bad for me? Can I do it? Lent is intended to be so much more than this. 
A little history for you. 40, the 40 days of Lent are representative of, 40, of Jesus' 40 days being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Maybe you knew this. A time of being strengthened spiritually through fasting, through prayer, through recalling Scripture and actually reciting it, speaking it out loud to the temptations and challenges that he was facing. And as a consequence, Jesus grows in spiritual power and stature by denying himself comfort and the temptation of power. His efforts were for a purpose to become the Savior that he was meant to be. Again, becoming the Savior. See? These 40 days were symbolically tied to the 40 years of the Israelites wandering in the desert wilderness under Moses. Again, growing into the people of God. Growing into those people. Not exactly in the ways that they would have chosen. They fought and kicked and screamed the whole way. But then again, uh, the early church eventually began combining Lent with preparations for baptism of adults who wanted to become Christians. You say, uh, I want to follow Jesus. I want to become a Christian. And say, okay. So to be called a Christian would mean you would, you would be required to follow Jesus. It's not just an add-on option like it is in the church today. Like, do I want to go to small group or not? It was a requirement. And so the 40 days before Lent uh, were meant to be a, a preparation for candidates that included daily instruction and a 40-day fast of food, of sex, and even, wait for it, bathing. <laughs> Who would want to hang out with those people? And they would finally get a chance to bathe on Maundy Thursday. Now, that adds a lot of significance to being washed by Christ, right? This was a very intentional practice. See, look at how the depth of spiritual formation that Lent started out as versus, can I give up sugar for Lent? Hmm, we'll see. <laughs> it's a really big difference there. All of this was aimed at helping these new believers understand the difficulty of the lifestyle that they were signing up for. More than the proverbial stamp of approval that we might expect that baptism or even confirmation, this was a commitment to align one's habits and lifestyle with Christ. So throughout the history of the early church, Lent is intended to be a time when we examine our lives and see where we're in need of change to see where we have created idols for ourselves of success or feeling good, or even, this is maybe the most dangerous one, the idol of spiritual growth. During Lent, we discover anew our deep sense of need for God through reflection, through fasting, through prayer, and giving of ourselves. We reflect upon our choices and how our choices are shaping us more like Christ or more like somebody else. In our text today, the Apostle Paul places a high emphasis on the importance of continually resisting being conformed to the world's standards, but instead being transformed by the renewing of your minds. Now, transformation begins with presenting our bodies as a sacrifice, which simply means, well done if you're watching online or here today, it simply means showing up, creating space, intentional space in your life for God to work taking the time to come to church and be involved in the community of believers. Carving out space, like intentionally carving out that space at the beginning or middle or end of your day for prayer, for Scripture reading, maybe for sitting in silence to reflect upon the ways that you felt close to God or maybe the ways that you need God's grace. 
And you're saying, well, I thought you said not to add anything, Pastor Chad. <laughs> okay, well, just keep paying attention. Transformation into Christ-likeness begins with allowing space in our life for examination of your current habits and your current values. It's impossible to grow in faith without being willing to examine where we're at right now. In the renewing of our minds that Paul is talking about would have likely consisted of the rest of the context of this letter. We call it the book of Romans. But if you continue reading in Romans, he talks about things like loving one another, loving your enemies, showing hospitality, offering forgiveness, blessing your enemies, living in harmony with one another. And there's a lot more there. So the transformation by renewing of your mind starts with making time for God and allowing these words these teachings to permeate your soul. Paul's teachings, of course, were based upon Jesus' teachings. There's no contradiction there. But this is not automatic, friends. This process that Paul is talking about, or the process of preparation for baptism, the origins of this time of Lent, is not automatic. We have to work towards it. We have to declare it as our goal. But the difficulty in this endeavor is also addressed by Paul. A contrast. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Paul's expressing that if you don't allow the Holy Spirit to shape your habits and your desires, then you will be shaped by the culture around you. It's a guarantee. Again, you know this to be true. We become like the people around us. Perhaps this is why it's hard to talk about our faith. How How hard is it, I bet every person would raise their hand if I said, how hard is it to talk about Jesus in front of other people? You'd say, very hard. Okay, well then, if we're hanging around other people who are willing to talk about Jesus, it becomes easier, right? But if none of our friends or none of the people that we spend the most amount of time with ever talk about Jesus or why following Jesus is important, then of course it's hard. Of course. And in my opinion, personal opinion, that's part of why we're in the position we are as a church, because we've neglected these simple but powerful truths about our habits. So we have to take then, if we want to be different from the people around us, if we want to live our lives for Jesus, we have to take a different kind of approach. One that takes sacrifice. We understand the difficulty of making a sacrifice like this because it takes time and reflection and commitment to take responsibility for the person that we are growing into. The person that we're going to be for the next five years or the next year. Or when we get to the end of our life and we look back and we say, who was I really? Again, answering the question, who do you want to be in this life? That's a difficult question and I think that most people don't actually think that deeply about it. Who has the time? (laughs) Who has the time to think about that kind of a question? But, see, this is the danger. We take a shortcut to answering that question. It's called comparison. This is the great danger of social media. Instead of setting a course for ourselves to say, this is who I'm going to be, and this is what I'm going to do to make sure that I become that person, instead of having the time and the clarity to do that, to say, I will not budge on this course that I'm setting for myself, for my family. Instead of setting that course for ourselves, we look at what other people are doing and feel better about ourselves. We say, uh, I'm better than them. They don't even go to church. I'm better than them. They're not even Christian. 
I'm better than them. They're not even what? You can just insert it yourself. That's pride. And that's perhaps the greatest hindrance to our own spiritual growth. Or, or maybe worse than that is to say to look at other people and say, I'm not as good as Deb. Look, at she's involved in everything and I can only be involved in a little bit. Or she's been a Christian for so long. Or Larry, he's been a Christian for so long. I'm ne- I can never be as good a hint as him. And that's a terrible feeling as well. We don't soak in the, the love and the grace that God has for us and say, no, I want to follow Jesus. So whether it's pride or feeling bad about ourselves, this is a trap. It's prison. It's hopeless. And so if we're stuck in pride, thinking that we're better than, our, than others, then it's almost impossible to extend grace or to show kindness or to offer forgiveness or demonstrate patience and generosity. How could we? If our default posture is, well, I'm so much better than them, how could we possibly show compassion to that person? How could we even show compassion to ourselves? In other words, pride is perhaps the biggest stumbling block in our journeying with Christ. This is why Paul says that humility is such an urgent need. He says it this way, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to. That's what the world does. That's who you'll become if you just let yourself be shaped by everybody else around you. It's a game of comparison or blame and shame. Every time something hard comes up in the world, I just hear these things. Well, if so-and-so would have done that, if these leaders would have acted in a different way, that's blame. It doesn't matter what issue it is or what hard thing in life. Blame doesn't help us. It doesn't help us experience Christ in the world. Or to feel shame for ourselves or to cast shame on somebody else. It doesn't do anything except create more harm. That's not the life that God wants for you. That's not who we're created to be. So as we allow God's Word to transform us and to shape, to reshape our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of God, and our understanding of others, then our perspective is changed. And we gain humility. We read this, I'll read it again uh, at the beginning of worship. In Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Okay, that part's easy. That's, well, maybe, but that sounds nice. Do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing for your flesh and refreshment for your body. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't trust in your own understanding of things. Humility is the key that unlocks our journey towards Christ-likeness. So we can create a habit of making space for God if we're willing to admit that we've not made time. See, it, it takes humility even to start. We can create a habit of learning and growing if we accept our need to grow. Both of these then produce a habit of humility, which comes from understanding our limits in this life, understanding the limitations of our own wisdom, understanding our flaws, understanding our failings, understanding our need for repentance and grace. 
This is the difficult journey. This is the road less traveled. This is discipleship. But the consequence for us is that we begin to look more like Christ and respond in a more Christ-like way to everything that we're experiencing. This is the whole point of the Lenten journey. Far greater than a habit's inventory. We're rather asking ourselves again the question. Let me ask you again. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? If your answer to that is not, I want to be like Christ, then why bother giving up something or adding something for Lent? What's the point? Why would you put that restriction upon yourself? Why do you need to do that during Lent? Who do you want to be? In the Christian tradition, uh, there's a, an exercise that eventually I'll try and lead you in. It's called the rule of life. So it's this intentional practice of saying, what kind of, you would say, what kind of a Christian do I want to be? Maybe have a, a little bit deeper understanding of your own giftedness or where you're at. And, you, and you, so you start with that. You say, who do I want to be, okay? I want to be somebody that reflects, say, I want to be somebody that reflects the compassion of Jesus wherever I go. I want to live my life for Jesus. You start with that statement. And then you, then you make a list of the things that will enable you to get there. Rather than saying, what habits do I need to change? You say, these are the habits that will get me to reflecting the, the, the grace and compassion of Jesus. You say, okay, well, the first thing on my list is making time for God every single morning. Coming to church every week. Uh, Living a healthy lifestyle so that I feel good in my body. Making space for silence and reflection. Journaling maybe at night. Being a good uh, husband and dad, that's on my rule of life. Exercising is on my rule of life. All things that help me to be a healthy person so that I can give my very best to God. See, now that's an exciting endeavor. where We're building our life around our ultimate goal of who do we want to be for the rest of our life rather than saying, that's got to go, that's got to go. We start to feel shame and guilt maybe about some of the things and it's hard to change. How hard is it to change? But growing in faith, friends, does not just happen. Neither do any of your other goals, right? If we succumb to the illusion that we already know enough about God, which is so common, we just say, once I'm confirmed, I know, I can check out. I don't have to learn anymore. I don't even hardly have to pray anymore because I'm confirmed. If we succumb to the illusion that we already know enough about God or love enough or forgive enough or have done enough, then we almost immediately, almost immediately limit God's action within us. Or worse, we become the Pharisees who turn away the grace and presence of God based upon our own merit. Their faith is more about them than the humble way of Jesus. I'm uh, preaching from texts from this book. I don't really use the, the writings of it, but this is a devotional book that you can grab a copy of in the lobby out there for free. Um, but there's, really good, there's a really good point that the author made on the fourth day of this. It says, Humility is an elusive quality. The minute you work your hardest to obtain it, you become proud. 
Look at how humble I am. <laughs> the, very pursu- the very pursuit disqualifies you at the, out- at the outset. How can you grasp it? You don't. You do not find humility. It finds you. And it almost certainly enters through the back door of failure and hardship. Not an easy path. But the view from there is easily the best you'll ever find. It is unobstructed by self. No selfies or selfishness or self-interest there. Just Jesus. And when you see Him, it becomes the most beautiful thing you will ever know. My experience in this faith walk has been the more that I open myself up to Christ, the more I understand the depth of my need for healing and for growth. Every time I think, oh, I'm in a pretty good spot, (laughs) then the next pathway for growth is revealed most oftentimes through failure or embarrassment. And then what comes with it is a regained sense of humility. Friends, I think that's because God leads us, if we're following Jesus, God leads us out of our comfort zone. Leads us out of our comfort zone so that when we're following Him, we're, we discover the limits of our knowledge, the limits of our goodness, and the limits of our willpower in light of Christ's perfection and humility. But this posture itself is the victory not any level of progress that we make. It's the habit of humility. The lifestyle of humility. The way of Christ. Like Jesus says, the least among you all is the greatest. So as we begin the Lenten journey, again, I ask you, who do you want to be? For six weeks. Who do you want to be? And how are your current habits helping you to get there? Where's Christ in this equation? Do you have the humility to even ask yourself these questions? Most people, if I were to go up to you and ask you any of these questions, you might be upset with me for asking. See, that's the, that's the, the guard that we put up. That's pride. Christ is waiting for you to turn to Him, to repent, to receive your true purpose and passion in life, which is becoming like Him and reflecting His character to everyone that you encounter. That's it. This requires a habit of humility so that when people say to you, you've changed, they say it with an awestruck awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. It somehow gives them hope. It somehow gives them peace. It somehow gives them an invitation into the abundant life that Jesus offers to every one of us, no matter what is happening in the world. Amen.